Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel. I'm here with Elias Randall in the studio again. He has that same plaid shirt on. Is that the same one you wore the last time we filmed, Elias? I think I got four in a row right now. Is so. it the same shirt, or you like have a collection of identical plaid shirts? No, for the no, show? this is the same one. Do you wash it though? So right, I'm run it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, just making sure. <laughs> I just thought it'd be funny to keep wearing the same shirt until one of the listeners calls me out about it. So we'll hey. see how many in a row I can go. Honestly, I only recognized it because you told me you were going to keep wearing the same shirt. I don't really pay that much attention, but uh, you would have noticed. You, you look good in that today. Um. What's funny is you're not changing your shirt or shirt style, but I feel like the the theme of some of the most recent episodes and shows is that a lot of stuff is changing and changing rapidly. And, um, yep. you know, we worked in this show yesterday in, in this. Actually, we talked about this stuff on WMTAM 600 last night. Um, but there's a lot of change happening. And I just read an article yesterday and I try to read a lot of articles and figure out why things are happening. I mean, why are we seeing the change? Why is technology ramping up so quickly? And I read an article that said U.S. household income in March surged 21%. On average, household incomes went up 21%. Yeah. So that, that has a lot to do with some of the things we're seeing, right? Is Incomes are higher right now. I mean, I, I don't – I think you could pull 100 people – and every single person would tell you that they believe the prices of goods have gotten more expensive. I made a comment to my wife. It was used to go to the grocery stores, 200 bucks a week. I'm buying the same stuff. And now it's like 250. Yeah. Either that or, you know, my girls are sneaking more stuff in. I don't know. I can't figure it out, but lumber all time high for lumber costs. So, um, our friend Brad, who likes to do projects, like I used to be able to buy a eight foot two by four for two ninety nine. Now it's eight bucks. Yeah gasoline well just like sheets of osb are so expensive right now i saw a funny internet meme where this guy had two sheets of uh osb hanging out of his truck and someone wrote like way to flaunt your wealth <laughs> <laughs> no but it's true i mean i remember building shelves last year um in a storage room in my house i mean it was cheap like oh yeah it yeah. cost me like 30 bucks now i'm going to this if, if i were to do it today i'd actually probably compare the cost between buying a metal shelf that's like already built versus buying some wood and building a shelf because arguably right. we're getting to be the same cost yep. gas prices those are going up so inflation's kind of rearing its head and jerome powell um uh fed chair actually had to talk about this at his last meeting and said he doesn't see this as a long-term you know inflationary situation but a lot of it's supply chain related still going back to covid my parents they bought a new camper in january the people that they bought the camper from said, had they put the order in in February, they're not getting a camper because they ran out of glue for the ceiling. You can't find a used car. So there's a lot of things we haven't seen in a long time that are changing. And I can't help but to think some of it has to do with the amount of money that's been injected into the system and the fact that you know when someone's income or household income rises 21%, well, all of a sudden they're willing to pay a little bit more to go buy the OSB versus when incomes were normalized. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and people it's, you know, owning a home or building a home, that's like something people are never going to want to stop doing. So, you know, the demand's high right now and it, it might keep going for a while. It's, you know, I don't know that, but 
I would imagine it does. Most people I know either want to own a home or build a home at some point in their life. Well, as we talk about, we don't predict. We just kind of look at what's going on in the world and try to figure out why it's happening and are there ways to capitalize for clients. Um, so it kind of leads me into the next article that I read. Actually, I had a client um, and friend. I'd call him a friend, too, but we enjoy drinking bourbon and whiskey and um, so he sent me this article. I thought this was really cool. And it relates a little bit to the finance world because it's actually from the collection of JP Morgan. And it's, yeah. which that's really cool. It's really cool because JP Morgan, whether you like the bank or not, he's kind of an iconic figure in the finance world. Um, but th there's a bottle of bourbon that's set to hit auction. And they expect that the price at the auction, I think the auction's in June to go for about $40,000. It's believed to be the oldest whiskey or bourbon ever produced, likely produced between 1763 and 1803. And in the way they kind of figured out how old that was, they went back and actually carbon dated it. So carbon dating, and I know this because I watched the Curse of Oak Island. And, <laughs> yeah, see, I'm not familiar with carbon dating and, and how that works. And, yeah, it's basically the the ability. So in like Curse of Oak Island, they'll take like a piece of wood and they'll send it off to a lab and they'll say, well, based upon carbon dating, it is believed to be between these dates. And my wife just laughs at me because, you know, these guys like never find anything. I've been watching this for 10 years, hoping they're going to find the treasure. I feel, like I, I feel like I'm invested, but either way, it's pretty cool. And actually... Um, so Jack Morgan is the son of J.P. Morgan, and um, uh, he had given this bottle of whiskey uh, to politician James Burns and then giving the other two bottles to Franklin D. Roosevelt and Harry Truman sometime during their presidency between 1942 and 1944. So there's just some cool history with this that it's one of three bottles, but I think it goes to worst we're seeing that excess of spending and people willing to spend money potentially on things that they wouldn't. And this is seen as probably more of a collectible versus I'm going to go pop this bottle and uh, enjoy right. this with my yeah, friends. I yeah, mean, this is a collector's item all the way. You know, 200, 200 year old or 250 year old bottle of bourbon. I mean, as cool as it sounds, not so sure I, I'm going to have a little drink of it. Yeah. Well, and for that price, I'd almost think I can't drink this. Well, it's too expensive. It takes me back to this must have been three or four years ago. My wife and I went to San Francisco um, for our anniversary, spent some time in wine country. But um, it, there's like a pier there. You know, I, I don't remember what it's called, but there's a main drag in San Francisco. And there was a there was a whiskey bar. It was really cool. You walk in and it's literally like bottles of whiskey up on the wall everywhere and from you know inexpensive stuff to the highest end stuff and you know you're at a good whiskey bar when they're serving you square ice but not like in a square mold they're literally like cutting the ice they're chopping squares they're off chopping of square block. off a block so oh, you know wow. you're getting That's... the real deal when you go there and yeah. i was having a talk to the bartender and i said hey what's the most expensive bottle you have and he pointed up to the top and he goes thirty thousand dollars i mean Whoa. And I go, well, how are you ever going to serve it? And he goes, because I, I asked it once you open it, like, how long do you have to drink? And he goes, once we open that bottle, we pretty much need to drink it at one time. Like he didn't believe it was a bottle. They could sit back and just yeah, keep drinking it. from. So he said, I'm not sure it'll get open for a long time because I'm going to have to have someone that's willing to spend 
$30,000 ish to open that bottle and drink the whole thing with his friends or family or, or whatever it is. So yeah. um, there's only, there's like a very limited amount of people who would do that and can't afford it. You're right. right. And yeah. so the cool, the thing about this whole whiskey, it's, it's kind of an iconic bottle because it's from JP Morgan. It's the oldest. It's actually not the most expensive bottle though. Um, right. I think the most expensive bottle is a little north of $2 million. Um, I'd have to go back when I was doing some research, but, um, so I thought that was kind of a cool way to kick this off. I'm going to thank Rob for sending me the article. Cause I know he retired and he drinks, he likes to drink the bourbon every day. So, uh, yeah, a little shout out for him, but so to be, it'll be interesting to see cause they're set this price range and now this is getting pl- publicity. Is it going to go for more than what they think at this point at the auction? I mean, if you're a f- – okay, so if you own a hedge fund or you're some big financier and you've got this iconic bottle that's believed to be from J.P. Morgan's. I know. There's got to – yeah. Someone, and, there's and, got to be a handful of people that would really want it. And money's really flowing. You might say, you know what, whatever. I'm going to spend what it takes to get this bottle. <laughs> this yeah, because, is going in my collection. Right, because yeah. it's a collectible, which leads us to a really – Kind of neat thing I heard about, it would have been last Wednesday, I was listening to arguably our favorite podcast that we listen to. Yep, so shout compound. out to The Compound and Animal Spirits with uh, Josh Brown and Michael Batnick. Um, but there's a new company out there called Collectible, and it's not with an I, it's with an A. And what Collectible does is they have brought mainstream collectibles to the ever average everyday um guy and what i mean by that is i just saw the lebron james rookie card sold for 5.6 million dollars and people that maybe aren't tuned into this there is an absolute craze going on right now around playing cards collectible cards it is like nothing we've ever seen truth be told it's what i thought was going to happen with my baseball card collection and my Beanie Baby collection. Yep, back right? in the 90s, right? I was driving to Lake of the Ozarks with a friend to go fish the Big Bass Bash down there. This is a couple of weeks ago. And he was like, yeah, we were talking about this. He goes, <laughs> I remember sitting around with my Beckett Sports Magazine, right? And it's telling me the, the cost of the cards. And we'd be trading cards, trying to, like, take advantage of our friend, thinking this is going to be our <laughs> retirement. And, and we're joking. But the only thing my Beanie Babies are good for is we talked about last night well if you really need to you can insulate your walls yeah so So beanie babies have some r value to them that was the best joke of the night you said they had some (laughs) r factor to them i can insulate my walls to the beanie babies yeah and according to the gentleman i asked about my baseball card collection i might be better starting a campfire with it yeah well 50 (laughs) bucks for the whole lot he said and i mean we're it's just take it's taking up 50 dollars for the real estate in my garage yeah at this point but Today's trading cards are different because in the 80s and 90s, the idea was we mass produce these things, crank them out, and that's how you know we're gonna you know increase our market capitalization and be profitable. Where today they're really restricting yeah. the overall flow, but they're focused on scarcity now. Right, but what collectible is? So just back to that bottle of bourbon. I'm not in the market for a forty thousand dollar bottle of bourbon. Mm-hmm. I'm not in the market because I can't afford it for a $5.6 million LeBron James card or a $219,000 Patrick Mahomes or a Wayne Gretzky that just sold for $274,000. i am not in the market because I can't afford it. It doesn't mean that I maybe wouldn't want to take part in it. So what Collectible has done 
is they have um, created a company where you can get fractional ownership of collectible items. They're primarily in the sports card arena. I went on and did a little research. I saw there's some Emmett Smith trophies going out there. And, and really what happens is they set up, um, each card becomes its own entity, and then they sell shares. And it, it looks like the, most of the time the share price is like $10 a share. But what's kind of cool is if I wanted to own part of that LeBron James card and they had the ability to, to offer shares, I could buy part of that. Yeah. And I, I love this idea. For me personally, I'm not really a collector, but I mean, to have the opportunity to own a little bit of something really cool like that, like I think that's something I would be interested in. And I really have no desire to collect cards or jerseys or anything like that. Yeah, I don't either. I, I don't have that desire to do that. But I do think it's cool because collectibles for the most part have been for the ultra wealthy. I, I think back to growing up, like true. You had the Ty Cobb card, you had the Honus Wagner card, you had the Mickey Mantle, like the creme de la creme of these cards that were believed to, they were super valuable. Well, they've never been in my reach, <laughs> right? right? And now they're getting more expensive. They're still not in my reach. Yeah. But now with collectible, it is. And here's a flip side too to what collectible does. Let's say I was fortunate enough to have the money to buy that LeBron James card. Well. I might want to take some chips off the table, right? Yeah, right. So a collectible will do actually let you sell shares in your card. So I could still retain ownership, you know, 50% ownership, but sell shares for the other 50%. So I think it's a really cool idea that allows people the opportunity to, to kind of open up an asset class that wasn't available to them before strictly for the wealthy. Um, it's almost kind of like what Robinhood's done with investing. They're kind of decentralizing it. Um, you know, Robinhood has fractional share ownership. Yeah. PayPal, you can get fractional share ownership of Bitcoin. Well, it's a lot easier to buy Bitcoin when you can buy $100 worth versus $55,000 worth. Yes. Um, yeah. Not saying either one of those are good investments. It's just made it easier to access. And it goes back to incomes are rising. People have money to buy collectibles or invest in things. We're making it easier to invest. So I think that's part of the change yeah. that we're really seeing around a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see, like, with the collectibles, they start to be a more popular company. Like, is there going to be speculative trading on these fractional ownership of cards? Like, someone goes out and buys five shares for $10 a share, and then they turn around and sell it to the next guy for $12 a share. And they can. So they have a, a daily, um, and I haven't researched all of it because I hadn't bought it, but I they have a liquidity feature. So I could buy it and sell it at current marking price. I know there is a lockup before you can get your money out. I think it's like 90 days. So they're not making it so you can day trade it because they probably don't want that much volatility, but it's right. a new cool idea. And you know the person I'm going to ask is, um, I have a friend in Louisiana and he's way into cards. He he flew to New Jersey the night before the Super Bowl to buy a Tom Brady rookie card. Yeah, yeah, he'd be the guy to yeah. ask about the. And I'm right, going there right. in June, so I'm going to find out and say, hey, yeah. what do you think about this? Because you know, obviously, there's some fees and expenses to do business with the company. I don't know what those are, but I'm going to see what he thinks about this idea because he has a massive collection. He who knows, maybe he's actually using it. But I think we'll have a follow up, kind of on that. Okay, Roger. So that's a good segue into. Um, kind of one of the articles I wanted to bring up. I came across one 
called the the delusions of crowd the delusions of crowds and why people go mad in groups so the article i read was kind of uh just a summary of a new book that came out by a guy named william bernstein so he he's wrote some finance books and his latest one is kind of around what's going on right now so in the last year we've seen a rise in retail investors coming into the market with you know things like Robinhood because you have access to trades without commission um, and cryptocurrency there's people getting into that and like we're talking about people are making more money now so there's more money available to do these things and here are some of my takeaways from this book is so speculation and kind of like following the herd or the crowd one this is not a new idea there's actually a book from 1841 it was called the memoirs of extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds <laughs> a guy named charles Mackey wrote it and it was about things we've talked about before um like some stock market bubbles in the european markets back in the day tulip mania from holland you know way back in the 1800s um and bernstein's kind of he summarizes everything by saying, well, there's kind of four, four key indicators of when this really, um, this crowd, crowd mentality kicks in. And it's one that financial speculation starts to dominate all conversations. So small talk is not of like family vacations and weather and, and this and stuff like that, but more around today, it'd be like, you know, people speculating on NFTs or Bitcoin or whatever it is trading on Robinhood. It's, that's a good example. So my home builder who built my house four years ago called me up just to shoot the breeze. Yeah, he's like, usually if he calls me for something, he's got a question like, can you help me here? Do this for me, whatever. Not a client. Just calls me up out of the blue. Hey, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this? And I just started thinking, like, you don't know anything about this stuff. Four years ago, you were asking me what the fiduciary rule was and if the mutual funds you owned or the right ones don't. But now you're speculating <laughs> in day trades. Like, yeah, the account goes up and down and he's buying all kinds of different stuff. And I just thought about, I'm like, where have we gotten to? And I come back to 2021's greatest line. Successful like investors don't act that way. Yeah. And I told him that. I said, I use that exact line. I that's going to hey, be the line of the year. That's the At line some point, of the year. That's, it's going to come. And, yeah. and full disclosure, I stole it from Josh Brown. You stole it from Josh Brown, but it's a line of your successful investors don't act that way. And I straight up told him that. And he goes, yeah, you're probably right. That's what he said to me. So, but that's to your point, you know, when all of a sudden you're getting financial advice from your roofer or the gardener or, you know, the guy at the local barista sitting behind serving you your grande latte in the morning. Yeah. And for my situation, my brother, he's called me about individual stocks and I know he doesn't know anything about finance. <laughs> well, and it was like it was a it was like a Wall Street bets. Well, hey, everyone's saying this one's going to go up. I I got a call from a client the other day. Hey, have you ever heard of this? So I <laughs> Google it, and it's it's foreign exchange trading. I'm like, okay, my granddaughter thinks this is really cool. I go, wait a minute, your granddaughter? What does she know about foreign exchange? foreign exchange currency trading. Yeah. Well, she follows some board on Reddit and she thinks it's really cool. How do we tell her that this isn't a good idea? <laughs> and, and my response was, well, you can't really tell her it's a bad idea because then she's really not going to listen. 
it's probably more of a conversation around explain to me how this works. And if you can't explain to me how it really works, then we probably shouldn't do it, right? Just following a board doesn't make a good decision. You're going to talk about that later. I don't want to steal your thunder, but I just thought about those examples. It's starting to dominate conversation with everybody. Yeah. And we saw this in 2000, right? All going to be day traders, the tech bubble. We're not saying there's a bubble. Maybe this is here to stay. Maybe we're going to have this lasting effect of people really being interested in investing or speculating. I don't know. Maybe it's here for a long time. I don't want to I don't want to speculate or you know make a prediction, well, but your point is interesting. Yeah, and I I think we both agree. It is great that people want to come into the market. It's a great place that everyone has access to to build wealth over the long term if you're using the right behaviors and you know and analyzing the situations correctly. But it's kind of like a double-edged sword, right? Because there are some aspects of the stock market that are almost like casino. It is so accessible. You you do have the ability to day trade. So I think that's the you know really that's the issue is. It can't, it shouldn't be something that's gamified or made into a casino because that's not, you know, kind of everyone sharing in the prosperity. That's not the point, or that is the point of the stock market. It's really not, it shouldn't be seen as a get rich quick vehicle. Usually when it's seen that way, some will get rich, right? And yeah, some says, people make Some money. people are going to get rich. Most won't. Yeah. I mean, if it was that easy, we'd all be doing it. Well, and younger, for the younger people, if you're listening or doing it, Hopefully you learn your lessons earlier on in the process when the money's really not that meaningful. Right. You're not doing amounts that are actually going to affect your life. Um, so just kind of wrap up his other three, his other three points about that were sensible professionals will quit reliable jobs to speculate. There's probably a little bit of that. I think you, I think you know someone, or you mentioned someone who was going to start trading. I had stocks lunch, and crypto. I had lunch with a friend on Monday. And he's asking me about all this stuff. That's really, he called me up and said, hey, have lunch with me. We had some like restricted stock units he wanted to talk about with his family, what he should do. But then we, he said, what do you think about this asset class and this? And oh, by the way, I have a friend who's going to leave his job and this is what he's going to do full time. Reminds me of 20 years yeah. ago. And when all of a sudden you're leaving your engineering job because you think you're going to be a trader. That's exactly what this means when sensible professionals quit their good job because they're going to trade. He's probably going to go back more than likely to that good job at some point in time. And I hope he doesn't. I mean, it's one thing if it's a hobby, but we make this come on. Everything goes up. Yeah, it's hard to not make money, but it doesn't go up forever. doesn't mean that over time it won't go up, right? We take a long-term view and believe long-term. Prices will be higher in the future, which will cause the stock market and all these other asset classes to go up. But the rapid pace things are going up right now won't last forever. Yeah. Well, and you've told me before, there's a narrative 20 years ago that everyone is going to be so good at day trading that financial advisors would be out of business. We'd be out of business. And you know what, though? Our industry has changed dramatically from 20 years ago. Yeah, because 20 years ago, we were seen as stock pickers today. I don't know too many people calling up a client saying, hey, this is the next hot stock, because that's not what really helps people. What really helps people is building a financial plan to quantify where they are now and where they're going. And that's what our job has 100 percent morphed into. Yeah, the job is morphed into yeah financial planning as opposed to stock picking. Correct. 
Yeah. Uh, and then another point he made, so skepticism is met with anger. So this is like if you have a conversation with someone about Bitcoin, it'd be exactly like at a, and we're going to talk about Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting. Well, they gave an opinion on Bitcoin that it's an asset that does not produce anything and which is a true statement. That's a fact. It's it doesn't actually produce anything. It's all price speculation. And, you know, and then people, they're upset with that because they don't it's a fact, but it doesn't go along with their narrative. So then they get angry about that. And the other thing, and this was a very good point. So then observers begin to make outlandish financial forecasts. And I think recently we read a, a forecast on Bitcoin predicting like a 27,000. It wasn't Bitcoin. Um, what was it? I, I was on Facebook yesterday and it was an ad. I'm trying to find it. Um, it was by Cointelegraph.com, had an ad, and here's the headline. Altcoins just repeated a move that could launch them 27,000% higher in yeah, 2021. That... So 27,000%, and this isn't our prediction. This is an actual ad that I saw on Facebook yesterday before we went into the show. And where are they getting this number from? Like, I mean, yeah. Boy, I wish I could start a website and say, hey, I think it's going up 27,000%. Yeah. I mean, do you know what the bro our broker-dealer would say if that was the ad that we put on Facebook? It's not not saying it can't happen. I'm saying it's highly unlikely, and it's outlandish speculation. Yeah, and it's just, and you know, these ideas, these are the things that happen when these, when these bubbles start to occur. And is it going to unwind? You know, no one really knows. It could, it could not. Um, well, here's the point. And, and I'm not anti, I'm not anti like, um, crypto in the future. Like there's absolutely things I think will always be part of our lives. Personally, I'm not going to price speculate on those things. Well, if I knew it was going to happen, I would make the right move. Right. right? I mean, it'd be right. that simple. I'd make the right move for myself. I'd make that move for my clients. I mean, it'd be really simple. It's not that simple because in, in all these asset classes that are, you know, increasing in value really, really quickly. There's two outcomes. You're going to be right or you're going to be wrong. And, yeah. and I don't know which right. one we're going to be, right? <laughs> right, right? But what I know is if I have a well-crafted plan that says this is what I need to do to be successful, then I stick to that plan, my outcome's good. In fact, you maybe came up with the best parallel for this. And I'll introduce and let you talk about it, but... Bill Miller, in our industry, ran the um, Leg Mason Value Trust for 15 years. He's famous for outperforming the S&P 500 for 15 straight years. I mean, he was a legend until 2008 and 2009. Yeah. And he basically made like two bad moves in his career and then just got, you know, and then people just took him to the, the woodshed over. He got hammered on about this, you know, and his funds suffered and his personal net worth suffered a lot, but he's a billionaire now. And what, 12 years later, 13 years later, he's a billionaire. And, you know, like you said before, it's, he stuck to a plan and he, and not only stuck to it, but he believed in his plan too. So it's almost like a little bit of aspect of, and when people are doing financial planning, it's like you either believe or you don't. Um, you know, we can provide all the facts we can provide, you know, whatever the stories and the narrative to help people make decisions. But at the end of the day, it's like, 
you either believe it's going to work out and you're going to do the right things or you're or you don't believe and maybe you're going to chase something or speculate on things that may or may not work so elias your point of bill miller i think the good analogy is bill stuck to his guns he did what he knew he could do to be successful he made a bad move in 2008 and 2009 and actually started buying some toxic assets in the yeah. financial crisis he was looking for an opportunistic time he didn't believe bear stearns was going to go under lehman brothers would go under aig would take bail like, he didn't believe any of that because it's not what got him there and i there's a mutual fund company that kind of suffered not the same plight of this right but for years they were creme de creme i'm not going to say who it is but they were huge holders of fannie mae and freddie mac so their funds suffered more than others and people that had been loyal to this company for years jumped off the bandwagon yeah and guess the, what that's a that event that's a blip on their radar now in the history of their performance and, and guess what they're back they're back <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with force and so i just think about that in your analogy of saying hey stick to the plan stick to what you can execute there's going to be bad stuff that happens i mean there it's not like this great roller coaster where you just go up and up and up right it's a roller coaster it's going to go down it's going to go up it's all how you handle the adversity in your financial life will determine your outcome. I go back to the worst investor ever, that little exercise we ran. Timing doesn't matter. What matters is time in the market. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, and Warren at a, at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, they made great points about time in the market and um, stock picking. And they actually had his point, he was asked a question and it was kind of around, okay, with the rise of Robinhood and commission-free trading, you know, what are some of your thoughts on that? And of course, you know, Warren Buffett was prepared. To, he, he knows what questions he's going to get asked. <laughs> so he's got three slides ready to go. And I'm really glad someone asked this because I have, I have a lesson for younger investors that are listening. So he showed a, he showed a slide that was the 20 biggest stocks in 1989. And then he showed a slide of the 20 biggest stocks um, currently in 2021. And the 20 from 1989 are not the top 20 biggest companies in the world anymore. So they're totally different. And the point he was getting at is the world can change and it, and it does change in dramatic ways. And picking individual companies for the long term, which he's been very successful at, is hard to do. And the other example he brought up and I was I thought was very fascinating was kind of at the height of auto manufacturing. We had over 2000 companies making cars in America at one time and now I mean get, what do we have three auto manufacturers, maybe four? Somewhere in there, but here's what I take away from that. So the top 20 list. It doesn't mean that those 20 companies by market capitalization from 2000 or from 1989 they're no longer in existence. It just means they're not the biggest. But some of the companies on there was Exxon, ConocoPhillips, uh, General Electric. Who'd have thought General Electric wouldn't be on there? Merck was on there. So fast forward to today, the largest companies on there is, you know, Apple, Amazon, all the companies yeah. we think of. Facebook. What that means in 20 years, if, we, if history repeats itself, in 20 years... None of the companies today may be on that list. Think about that. Well, who, who would think that in 20 years, Apple or Amazon or whatever company it's going to be 
won't be one of the largest top 20 companies. And we should actually have this as a definitive point in time because I plan on being here in 20 years. Yeah. Hey, in 20 years, let's look back and say, hey, are these still the top 20 companies? And if they're not, what that really means is that, like you said, it's really hard to pick an individual company for the long term. That's still going to be one of the top growth and top, you know, producing companies. Yeah. And, and it goes to why for most investors trying to get on the Robinhood app and buy a fractional share of Amazon probably isn't the way to get rich. The way right. to get rich is have a systematic savings plan, all the boring plaid planner financial stuff that's out there, right? Systematic savings plan, do a financial plan, have a well-diversified portfolio, which if you think about Berkshire Hathaway to go back to Warren Buffett, they're almost like a mutual fund. If you think about yeah. what they do is they're a conglomerate of companies they own. They go and buy companies and that's what they do. Where like Amazon produces or sells goods and services through the Internet. Apple produces phones and technology. Berkshire Hathaway, they don't really produce anything. They produce returns for people through the acquisition of different companies or like a big conglomerate. So they are actually more like a diversified investment portfolio than that of an individual company. Um, yeah, and here's the, here's one of the things I get a kick out of is, there, like, it's almost a little bit cool now to, like, okay, Boomer, Warren Buffett. And I would just, I mean, he's been successful for a reason. So, you know, is he 90-some years old? Yes, he is. But the wisdom and the things he knows about investing and evaluating businesses, there's value to that. It's not like, he's not out, when he says stuff like, I think it's immoral to gamify investing. He's not out of touch with reality. He has a very good sense of what's going on and the reality of the situation. Yeah, and Robin Hood hit back at him and said, "Why are we basically why are we still listening to these old guys?" Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know because they've been the greatest investor of all time. Maybe that's why we listen to them. So, with that said, it was a great show, Elias. I had a lot of fun doing this. The world is changing around us. We're not going to change. We're going to stick with the <laughs> plaid planner. We're, we're too stubborn to change. We're too stubborn to change. We're going to stick to stick to our plan. With that said, if anybody's looking for help with their overall investment portfolio or financial plan, you can get us at btwellshow.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.